author Sue Brain and I write about death, dying and consciousness. I'm delighted to welcome you back to this second series of Embracing Your Mortality. I have a fantastic lineup of guests, all of whom are speaking from their hearts about what it means to them to be living more consciously for a better world. Some are deeply involved with building community and working with environmental issues. This is sort of the last chance saloon now to make real radical changes across the board. Some speak about death and dying. Others are holistic doctors and healers. Human beings are more extraordinary than I could have possibly imagined. One is involved in helping children to understand their feelings and another is championing women in business. And I'm most grateful to Colin Gilbert's family who've given their permission to publish his interview about dying, which I did with him shortly before his death. I have a perception now that there's like a metaphorical door in front of me and it's cracked open and there's this most beautiful gold and yellow light spilling out of that door. If you haven't already, don't forget to listen to the first series of Embracing Your Mortality podcasts. Links to my guests in both series can be found on my website, suebrain.co.uk. Even though we're going through really challenging times, I hope all these conversations from both series inspire you to embrace your mortality so you too can live more consciously for a better world. Welcome to this second podcast with Justine Corey. Justine works as a psychotherapist and group facilitator and has been a positive, deep adaptation facilitator since September 2019, which addresses the potential psychological impact of climate tragedy. Justine's profound personal experiences of death and dying has also inspired her to facilitate death cafes and to address our cultural reticence to speak openly and honestly about loss, bereavement and the dying process, especially as we're facing such an uncertain future. For a very long time, I've been aware that in, in our Western culture, um, the mainstream relationship to death is a really unhealthy one. I've traveled quite extensively and lived in Asia and in other cultures where there's a very different relationship to death. Taking part in, in the death cafe just felt like this really welcome experience and um, something I guess I kind of yearn for in a way, a, a, a space, a place to just be able to have those very easy, flowing, open, honest, real conversations about probably the most important part of being alive, which is that we're all going to die. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of Eastern practices, some spiritual practices have, have been quite influential in my life. I lived in India for a very long time, well, on and off over a period of 10 years. I mean, death's very out in the open in India, you know, you go to Varanasi and go down to the burning ghats and there are bodies, you know, being burned in front of the, the family. It's, it's a very sort of visceral, open, organic process, if you like, that people are very much in contact with death. The family tend the bodies of 
their own death and died. They're not kind of like sent out to the undertakers. It's it's very integrated into life. It sort of always struck me that, you know, how different it is here and that it's something very hidden, very tucked away, um, not really spoken about or spoken about in these kind of very sort of controlled sort of platitudes. You know, when death is brought up, people say how sorry they are, offer their condolences, their sympathies. Um, but I don't know how often people ask, well, what's that like for you? You know, how is it for you that someone close to you has just died? Because it's, it's lots of different things to different people. And for me, I can only see that it can help us to be more in contact with life when we're also able to talk about death. I've been to India as well. I've been to, actually been to Varanasi. <laughs> just really curious about this different attitude about from the Eastern traditions. It's so different from us. Why do you think we have removed ourselves so much from death? Varanasi is doing its bit on the, on the burning gas right this minute. But yeah, we're yeah. still so precious I suppose around it well I was just thinking then in a way you know how it's perhaps it's sort of alienation in a way I don't know I mean this is really just spur of the moment thinking but partly it's our kind of disconnection from the earth as well um, I'm quite interested in sort of like neolithic people and um, that time you know tens of thousands of years ago when churches were, if you like, open spaces without roofs, where people made their pilgrimages and the church was the earth and the dead were taken ceremoniously into these earth temples and left out under the sky, sometimes in some of the places, or they're put into burial mounds where they would be, where they would decompose, even if they were in burial chambers those chambers would be open and people would be going in and out of them taking in different bodies and that death process was much more part of again everyday life it was an accepted part there was a there was a different experience of what death was it was looked upon as something cyclical that you died and then your body went into the earth and a lot of the kind of neolithic people's culture was around this idea of rebirth death and rebirth which we can see in like Hinduism and in Buddhism as well and of course also in Christianity but there's a different relationship there's a different mediation suddenly there's this patriarchal god in the midst of all of that that in a way with priests and you know lots of paraphernalia and suddenly there's this very different indirect relationship because death is something that's mediated literally by you know St Peter on the gates. I'm just wondering it's sort of the, the sort of this this Western culture sense of entitlement. I don't know um, if that, that, that resonates with you, but there's sort of this, it's my rights to have life, to have medication, to have my life extended be, way beyond my sell-by date. I think that's probably in there, but I wonder whether that, that's born out of a very fundamental disconnection from Earth and this body being a kind of physical manifestation, if you like, or kind of human manifestation of that kind of earth, body as earth, that, um, you know, we don't like the idea of it decomposing. 
our whole sanitation process, if you like. You know, it's an important part of life, you know, to have that. And of course, it saved lots of lives. But it's also the privileged pieces in there. But I don't, I don't know if I think it's about the actual privilege. I think that's almost symptomatic of a of that more fundamental disconnection. There was a nurse talking on radio for the other day, and um, there's this this huge issue with COVID nineteen. Is you know, are we are we playing God into who we will treat or not? That's what the medics are going. And um, and she was very angry the fact that her father was ninety. And he wouldn't be automatically put on a ventilator. And my feeling was, well, aren't we always playing God just by extending people's lives with medication? And and I think with COVID-19, it is bringing it very strongly to the surface right now. You know, that's a question that I've seen during COVID as being inquired into more. You know, well... How ethical is it, especially with limited resources, to be putting so much energy into keeping people who are alive who 50 years ago, 100 years ago, would have been dead by now anyway? Mm-hmm. That we're already keeping people artificially alive through medication, through, and quite often uh, a huge cost to dignity, quality of life. So that's one side of it. So that's us, right? And 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 where we're what we're being faced with right now. And COVID nineteen is actually giving us that. And in a way, it's a gift. It's I see it as a gift. It's giving us to really look at those very very powerful questions or or, or moral dilemmas, really. But I know you've been to the camps, mm-hmm. and you've had a very different experience than most of us have had about death. Um, being very raw, and I just want to talk to you more about your experience of that. The camps that I was working in and around were in northern France, so in Calais and Dunkirk, and I did spend a fair amount of time directly in the so in the jungle. One camp that was known as the jungle, so the really big camps that's in 2015, and then a smaller camp um, in Dunkirk. Um, I was mainly working with volunteers because when I went over I went over like a lot of people um kind of saw what was happening out there and um was kind of horrified at you know this growing number of people living in these conditions just 30 miles across the sea so did what a lot of other people did kind of saw the news report saw the conditions saw that, you know, there were people just sleeping outside, you know, on with no sleeping bag, no shelter, no food, no shoes on their feet, and started collecting things, thinking I'd, like, you know, take my car over there. And ended up, like a month later, with four truckloads of donations from all around Somerset, and this huge operation that we kind of took over there went along and discovered that there was already this emerging kind of like infrastructure of volunteers, very sort of loose infrastructure of volunteers that had been out there for a little while and was growing, you know, and a lot of people coming together, self-organizing around supporting in the camps and working together with the refugees to support. Obviously, there was a huge amount of trauma directly happening with the refugees. That felt like that wasn't something that I could directly 
work with because those people were still in a traumatized place. But what was even more evident was the amount of trauma and burnout that was happening with the volunteers. And that felt like that was something that I could directly support with having had experience of working with activists and activist burnout. And that, that, that was something that no one was really attending to. Over the period of about a year, year and a half, I went over maybe about eight, nine times. Um, so I would go into the camps on every visit, of course, because I've made relationships with people in the camps as well. And would, mostly was going over to offer therapeutic well-being support, trauma care for the, for the long-term volunteers but I'd also be going in and out and doing errands and things and supporting. So, of course, I, I was seeing what, directly what was happening in the camps. So I wasn't um, offering therapeutic work to refugees. So that's what I was doing there. It wasn't the first time I'd been in that kind of environment. Having spent quite a bit of time in Asia and done a little bit of work in um, voluntary work sort of in in Mumbai in sort of like in the slums and having sort of had experience of like like working a little bit with street street children and like I said I spent quite a lot of time in India so you know if you spend time in India you see a huge amount of poverty and illness and young children as well you know dying people just dying almost you know in front of you being in that kind of environment it was like so reminiscent of being in kind of the slums, shanty towns of in India um, and other sort of Southeast Asian countries. But in France, you know, for lots of different reasons, the smells, the kind of structures of the, 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 the like shelters, things that would be being cooked in front of you, hearing the same kind of languages. So it was a sort of very reminiscent and also the conditions were very reminiscent. But probably, apart from like the worst bits of the slums that I've been in in India, these were worse. But in France, especially in Dunkirk, there were a lot of younger children and babies, and sanitation was non-existent. So you'd have like open sewage. Um, there were water systems in place. Um, not from the French government, but from, you know, local charities um, and volunteers. But sometimes they wouldn't be working, so the contamination in the water, so a lot of sort of waterborne diseases and very, very, very ill, dying children and adults. I mean, people saw the images. And the, the frustration and anger that this is happening in Europe, 21st century, when we have at our fingertips uh, so many ways to preserve life. And then, you know, going back to kind of, you know, the kind of resources that get put into keeping people alive unnecessarily in one extreme to this, you know, young children being left to kind of rot, basically, mm. in refugee camp. In France. In France. 30 miles from us. You know, they were there because of our border, not because of the French, French border. I'm just wondering, did it leave you feeling impotent or angry or helpless? I, I was often really curious how 
I didn't feel that shocked and put that down to having spent so much time in places that were reminiscent. But I would have to remind myself that I'm, you know, I'm in Europe. <laughs> I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not in India because it would be easy to start almost like imagining that you were. Or it would be very easy to suddenly feel that you were in some sort of far-flung place. And of course, you know, there would be this strange juxtaposition between, you know, just literally getting off a boat and then, you know, within five minutes, literally just being in this other world. But it wasn't all despair there at all. And, you know, the self-organization and the creativity. So it was quite such a mix of different experiences. You know, a lot of different emotional responses would be, would be evoked. And I'm someone that's fueled in a way, um, into action by frustration. How is that, you know, seeing that other side of it, which is however much we moan about the NHS, I mean, for goodness sake, you know, you do ring 999, somebody turns up. You know, how how does that impact your view of death and dying? I can only imagine, I can't speak for you, but, you know, that there's this sense of, um, you know, how fortunate we are. I've had quite a complicated experience in a way with death and dying. So one of the kind of big influences on my own relationship to death and dying, because, you know, for all my kind of middle class kind of lifestyle now, I don't come from a middle class background. I come from a very, very poor working class, very deprived, actually quite traumatic childhood. My mum was an alcoholic and I left home when I was 16 and only saw my mum maybe, I think about four, five times after that and was in India and was traveling and um, was basically sort of like having a childhood that I'd never had when I was young. So I had a, throughout my 20s, did a lot of kind of exploring and a lot of being very, very irresponsible because when I was young, I was looking after my younger sister and being very irresponsible and working from a young age as well to kind of get money for us to eat. And I came back from from being away for almost 10 years um, and having all these different kind of experiences in different parts of the world and sort of finding myself a bit, you know, classic kind of going off and having um, sort of like time to really process a lot of what had happened before then. And when I came back, I decided to trace my mum. I'd lost contact with her. When I went to track her down, basically I found out that she died two years before and that she died completely on her own. That was a really pivotal and, you know, really difficult experience for me, but also quite sort of pivotal moment in my own relationship to death and what it means. And um, like I found her, I went to find her grave. She was in an unmarked grave. She um, hadn't had a funeral. No one had gone to her funeral. So it was quite um, quite a, a shocking experience. It was my kind of sort of like homecoming, coming back down to earth with a real crash, having been out on this kind of quite high, actually, a lot of spiritual bypassing, a lot of experimentation with my own consciousness and then sort of like coming back down and having to kind of do do the roll my sleeves up and do quite a bit of work and that's when I that 
whole period after quite a period of time of my own sort of like therapeutic journey led me to them becoming a therapist. And the other, there's a second part to that is that um, I'd also lost contact with my dad who I didn't grow up with and hadn't seen him for 12 years and re-established contact with him to find out that um, he was dying from cancer. So we, we sort of rebuilt our relationship kind of, over a course of a couple of years. And then I sat with him while he died. I don't know if I could say it was a good death because he was, he, he was very resistant to dying. But I felt like I could really be there for him in a way he was never there for me. And in doing that, somehow, that worked things through. In, in, it's like, okay, he could never do that, but I'm going to do it for you. And I'm going to you know, do what I couldn't do for my mum with you as well. I know you're really involved with positive deep adaptation and and the implications of what we are all, all of us globally are facing. And do you think that it really helps to face the unfaceable, whatever we are facing? Because I always say, you know, death is one thing, but it's the, the thought of extinction is something completely different. Do you think it really helps to profoundly have a relationship with death and dying? Well, it's, it's a kind of very fundamental piece of it. That, um, and that's why, you know, I feel like the death cafe work is, is kind of so exciting in a way and integral to this work. There's no certainty in any of this. We have no idea what the next five years hold, the next 10 years hold. You know, the whole experience with COVID seems as a part of that whole kind of like deep adaptation process as a kind of, it's like, you know, you know the, another initiatory step into something very, very unknown, very uncertain, that we have to look at our relationship to death and dying. You know, that's, that's not a choice anymore. And especially at the moment, you know, I think about death. I think about what happens if I was one of the people that, has the complications from COVID because that seems a bit random and what, what, how that would be and um, all the different implications around. I don't feel afraid of death. I'm afraid of a bad death. <laughs> um, and for me, a bad death would be in a hospital bed, being kept wired up for as long as possible artificially. I, I don't want that. I, I know for myself that I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that kind of death. Our relationship to death, like, like a lot of things, you know, like um, food, for example, you know, food has become this kind of, for a lot of people, not for everybody, of course, but something that's, you know, very processed and very far removed from what it actually is. So people who eat meat, you know, buy this like nicely cling film wrapped <laughs> package of something and they're not in touch with the process of what it takes to arrive. For me, it's all around, you know, the key word is disconnection. In that we are very, as a modern day 21st westernized um, species, I don't want to make, you know, polarize, like, because, you know, this is true of a lot of people in the world, wherever they live, are kind of, you know, capitalist, post-industrial, um, cult, consumerist culture that has 
fundamentally disconnected us from the earth, from, from the land, and from ourselves, and from our bodies. It's almost like you don't die in your head, do you? Almost that turns off, yeah. and something else happens. And sitting beside somebody dying, I find that I go up completely. The head doesn't, doesn't happen. There's something else much more powerful happens in my body and around me. It's as if death is the ultimate in the embodied experience. Yeah, yeah it's this sort of witnessing somebody's book closing and all the chapters that they've had in their life and it this is the final this is the final page the and then the book book closes and that their, their story's done you talked a little bit about um darkness and the importance of bringing the dark into conversations about death and dying and i'd just like to finish off by asking you more about that yeah, I think for me that's not just about conversations about death and death. That's just what I generally, when I feel it's maybe, you know, because I'm often kind of like, what's not being talked about here? I like to kind of hang out in the shadows a little bit because I think there's quite a lot of juice and, and um, aliveness to be found in the shadows. And that, that I have this sort of, sort of like curiosity in a way about how different life might be in a world where that was an everyday kind of practice, where our dead were maybe uh, witnessed more in that way. I mean, that's quite an extreme version, and maybe that wouldn't work, work for all kinds of reasons. But somehow, like death being more in the open, the kind of unpleasantness, the messiness. As what, you know, I think about the way we treat our dead, and the bodies of the dead as well in this culture, where they're often like I think you know pumped full of preservatives and put and, and made up and I'm really curious about that what is it that's being denied in our insistence on making the dead look like they're still alive and how different it would be if you know we didn't we didn't do that but we we kind of saw what happened and maybe, you know, we we cared, we tended for the dead in our own homes. I don't want to be carted off to an undertaker's. I want my body to be tended by my family and put on ice in the lounge for my friends. I'm just thinking that, you know, as climate change kicks in and more people are, are going to lose their lives because of it, in whatever way, how we're going to care for our dead. I mean, that's something that's kind of come to the surface during COVID in some countries as well already, hasn't it? Sort of like, you know, the funeral services being completely overwhelmed. And, you know, I've always been really curious as well about the kind of delay that happens in, in, in our culture quite a lot, whereas, you know, often in... And I've got Jewish heritage, and my um, father of my children is Jewish. And, and you know, it's happened the next day, you know, and that uh, same mm. in the like, Muslim culture, mm. obviously, you know, heat, things like that. So um, but there's something much more immediate about that as well, and kind of, you know, being, and here there's this, you know, long delay that happens. And I think a lot of it is we live such very busy lives. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not just to be interrupted in, in you know, yeah. 
but in so many other cultures, it, that's such, yeah, so different that everything does stop and that person is honoured and, and we make time to honour that person. Justine Corey, a psychotherapist and deep adaptation facilitator. You can find out more about Justine and her work through her website, justinecorry.com. My next guest is Pete Lawrence, creator of the famous, or should I say infamous, Big Chill Festival back in the mid-90s, and now the instigator of Campfire Convention. Pete relishes in bringing music, nature and people together to create harmony in community. To find that positivity, to find that unique gift is the essence of making the world a happier place. You've been listening to Embracing Your Mortality and I look forward to you joining me again next time. You can find out more about me through my website, suebrain.co.uk. In the meantime, here's to us all living more consciously for a better world. The Embracing Your Mortality podcast was researched and recorded by Sue Brain and produced and edited by the Podcast Den.